Welcome to Seasons of Sobriety. This is a podcast where you can join in the journey of other recovering alcoholics and addicts. You will be on the road with them as you listen to how each person came into recovery and how they persevered through times of anger, sadness, fear, and joy. I am your host, Howard M. I am here to share my own experience as well as the experience of other recovering brothers and sisters. I am so grateful you have decided to join me today. We're here with Mike L. from New Jersey. Mike has been sober since January 2014. I met Mike at a meeting shortly after you started coming at that time. He has become a very good friend of mine, and I'm sure you will enjoy listening to his story. So, Mike, first, I would like to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I know things are a little busy for you right now. And for a little bit, can you take us back to January 2014 and describe a little what made you come through the door? Sure. You know, it was a pivotal moment. I remember distinctly thinking the week before I quit drinking, standing in the shower, retching, you know, nothing coming up, just feeling awful and thinking, well, I had actually given up. I wasn't going to stop. And this is how I was going to die. And I wasn't being dramatic. I just thought, I didn't think death was going to come right away. I just thought, well, this is what's going to happen. Here we go. Mm. Uh, so I, I accepted that. And my wife decided to get her folks over the house because obviously I was out of control and she just needed help because we had two you know, newborn kids. So the pivotal moment was I managed to get to work one of those days. It was the seventh because that's when I quit drinking. Last time I took a drink. My mother-in-law was standing in the garage holding the two infant babies in her arms. You know, right at the door. And uh, I just, that crushed me, you know, it really crushed me. And she just didn't give me any crap. And she said, look, I don't know what you're doing, but it's not going to, it's not working. So, you know, everybody here loves you. You have to get help. And that was it. And that, that, that's what at least put me on the path. That was a Thursday, I believe. Wow. Like, don't quote me. I'm <laughs> sorry. But, well, um, on Saturday morning. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Saturday morning. By Saturday morning, I was in Flemington, New Jersey, home group, you know, at 7 a.m. And I believe you were there, actually, that first day. <laughs> so uh, you didn't approach me then, but I was too chicken shit to, to you know, talk to anybody and shoot my mouth off. But eventually, I'd say two or three months in, he came over and offered me help and been sober ever since. Wow. Now, was she going to... She's saying these babies are, t- I'm taking them with me unless you do something? It, no, no, she's non-threatening. And then it was probably the nicest, most contrite I've ever seen her <laughs> before or after or since. She was just very calm, down to earth. Apparently, I found out later on that she had some experience with alcoholism in her family, too. Okay. Okay. Wow. It's like yeah. a moment of clarity, right? Uh, yeah, it really was. I also didn't have any booze at the house. And what was strange, too, is I didn't stop on the way home. Of course, I always would have stopped. Or I'm going to have something on reserve somewhere, somehow. But I didn't have anything. And, uh, you know, it certainly didn't. I certainly wanted a drink, you know. Sure. I remember wanting one for a long time. But I, I, there was nothing available. And that was just enough to you know, get me in the door, eat my humble pie, and just, you know, take a shower and, and try to go to bed, even though his two little babies were there. But I thought, I remember thinking at the time, well, she's got help now. She'll be okay. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm right. I'm going to take care of me right now. You know, poor me. I'm hurting. You know? Wow. Okay. And so, so now you're in a couple months and did you know what to expect? Had you been to AA before? I had been in the parking lot of several AA meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had, that's true. But I'll take you back a little further. Back 2007, I had a 10 month stretch of sobriety. I worked with someone that I uh, was also in the program and they, they were trying to help me as best they could. And they did a great job, but I thought I got a handle on it. Went and got a handle because of it eventually, you know, thinking I could, I could drink like normal people. 
you know? So that was in 2007. So to answer your question, yeah, I had been exposed to AA before, but all the classic stories or cliche were me too. I mean, I remember leaving some meetings with a bottle under the seat, you know, just chugging away, you know, lying to the person that was helping me and telling them I wasn't drinking. And in hindsight, I remember some of the conversations and he knew just like we know now when we reach out to help others, you know, but but I was fooling everybody. So no, it wasn't my first meeting. It wasn't my first exposure, but it was the first time that it meant something to me. Mm. You know, before I was going through the motions because I had to, and I thought I had a problem, but maybe I didn't, you know, I, I hadn't convinced myself. I wasn't ready as, as everyone likes to say, I, I wasn't ready, you know? Yeah, kind of, um, kind of at this level of, of, like we said before, clarity and like the this, this, this window opening. And if you don't kind of, you know, take a little bit of that sunlight in, it's 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 going to close and it might never open again, right? Yes, that's right. Yep, I realized that. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And so you're kind of now in a few months. And if I could just explore with you the God of your understanding at this point in time. I mean, did you grow up with something? Did you, you know, where, where were you with all that when you came in? Uh, I was all over the place. I, I had always, I, I grew up with a structured religion, the Catholic. And I was confirmed. And, you know, any Catholics out there listening that, you know, once you're confirmed, it's all up to you. So it's what you do. You do what you do with it. And I didn't do anything with it except when it suited me. You know, like when I was in the service and stuff, like, oh, things are getting a little rough here. Let me let me talk to God now, you know, or, uh, oh, I really want this. Let me talk to God, you know. I wasn't anywhere close to the God of, you know, my understanding that I have now. But I was listening. But the only thing I had to rely on is what I had been taught previously. So at the time, I remember thinking, you know, it, it, it was, it didn't push me away, but it was certainly a barrier because it sounded like, as a newcomer, it sounded like I had to be very religious, you know, and in actuality, of course, it keeps saying hindsight, but that's what I have. It's clear as a bell. That's it, not anything like that at all, you know. Right. So right. yeah, so, it, so, so, so I was, I was. It was, it was a barrier. It was definitely a barrier. But I was just more interested in just not drinking, you know, because I was falling apart. Everything was falling apart. Right. But, you know, it, it, with you know, with your help, obviously, and, and going to meetings and listening, eventually, I started to understand a different meaning of what God meant and what a higher power meant, you know? Now, a lot of people come to meetings and they don't drink. And there's a saying talks about don't drink and go to meetings. And you were doing that. And at a certain point, you said to yourself, it's more than this. And can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we were on the phone, you and I, and you had been grooming me, which is the proper word now, for the big fall, is in my mind, what I call it. And what the big fall was is, is realizing you know, the true nature of my side of the street versus everybody else. And what do we discuss? You probably remember, maybe you don't. My wife was going somewhere with the children that I did not want to go to. It was a family event. Mm -hmm. I did not understand and I could not understand why you were telling me to go. You know, in other words, in my head, I couldn't figure out why. Why do I have to go? Why don't you see it my way? Why, why me? Why me? Why me? And it and then after you finally said, because you're a selfish prick, you know, and you need to go for all the right <laughs> reasons, you know, it, when you said that, you know, and I had a moment to reflect, that's, that was the pivotal moment. I said, wait a minute. You mean I have to be nice to people and I have to consider others other than myself, you know? And when that, with that came a small little peek into, you know, understanding what a higher power can do for you. you okay. know, the fact that he put you in my life. And he, you know, in, in, at my pace, you know, like my learning pace, everyone is different. I was 
ready for it then because it, it bruised my ego enough to humble me, but not so much to drive me away. I was on, right on the edge, you know, I was thinking, F this guy. But at the same time, I finally grasped what you were trying to say. So the uh, epiphany to that was, you know, think, reflecting on it at the time, so what, what is, you know, why did all this happen? You know, why, why is this right. man teach this to me? And then finally, I, I put it together, not the entire picture, but I put it together that, you know what, maybe there's something just a little bigger than me happening here. Hmm. And we continued working together, and I slowly started understanding more and more. And then you gave me other work to do, and I developed my own concept of God, which, for what it's worth, is, is very different than what my structured religion taught me when I was a kid. Right. I'm happy for that. I'm in a much better place with it. Nice. And in the beginning, you were willing to go to quite the length to work the steps. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I wasn't willing. I had a good sponsor. <laughs> I really, you know, I went, going back to just what I was saying before, I realized just enough that I wasn't going to ask anyone else for help. You were willing to help me. So I realized just enough that if I had to keep doing what you're asking me to do, <laughs> if only to keep the peace and to keep me sober. Mm -hmm. And you worked with me and you understood my positions, you know, with the responsibilities. So was I willing to do it? No, I, you know, not initially. I, I was 51%, let's say it that way. You know, I was just more than half willing to do it, which apparently was just enough, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm glad I did. So did I become willing? Yeah, just enough. Right. You know, well, in my final work, there's, a, there's a, uh, a term called reasonable doubt, and it's a legal term. I'm sure folks have heard it before, but, you know, it's 50-50, tie goes to the runner. You know, so I had 51% of me <laughs> said, yeah, you got to do this stupid, you know, <laughs> keep going. So that was me. So was I willing? Yeah, just enough. I was willing just enough to do it. Yeah, because I know you were, you know, you had two little kids, right? They were, they were twin boys, two years old, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and just not a lot of time to, you know, you had a lot of things to juggle. And so to, to someone listening to this, they, they should understand that, you know, we met at six in the morning on Saturday mornings before the 7 a.m. meeting. You know, and you know, I was willing to do that as as long as you were willing to do that, and and I think it's important for people to to hear that because yeah, some absolutely. people say, oh, I I can't get a hold of my sponsor. It's like, well, uh, you might might want to try a little harder. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So good. That's, yeah, that's true. So, who do you think at this point benefits most from? Your sobriety, you're practicing these principles in all your affairs, the changes that you've made, and who do you think benefits most from that? Besides me? Yes, besides in you. To me. In addition to uh, you. No, I'm not being silly. I no. mean that. I mean, without, you know, without me being practicing the principles, you know, nobody benefits. Mm -hmm. So, besides me, I uh, am, of course, uh, my kids. I think one of the many gifts that AA has given me is that I get to raise my kids, bestow upon them the principles of our program. You know, the, the basic tenets, you know, just being kind to others, thinking of others first, not making yourself a doormat, you know, and, and you know, learning humility, what humility really needs. You know, thinking of others before you think of yourself. You don't think less of yourself, just think of yourself less often. Mm -hmm. That's a great one. I love that one. I love it, too. That's actually the one, you know, another pinhole into my understanding. I didn't understand what humility was, and I won't get off track here, but, you know, someone said that at a meeting. I expressed that I didn't understand it because it was the topic of a discussion at a meeting, and someone came and said that, you know, and there's just another example of just hearing something at a meeting, you know, and I don't remember anything else about that meeting. I don't even remember who said it. I just remember they said it, and that made sense to me because to, to, prior to that, I would think, oh, humble, that means, you know, I'm a 
I'm a lesser person. I have to, you know, kowtow to these people. I have to bow down. And no, it doesn't mean anything like that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I get to teach my kids, you know, not to think less of themselves, just to think of themselves less often. Yes. And I get to teach them, you know, patience and tolerance and acceptance, all words that were foreign to me other than, you know, knowing how to spell them really before I came AA. So they benefit the most, I think. And then I, uh, I, you know, to me, well, I'm not sure if we're going to go down this road, but my service work extends beyond alcoholics. Can you and talk I, about that? Because I was actually going to ask you about that. Because, and I'll just, yeah, okay. I'll just preface this by saying that in your case, that, you know, when it says, you know, to help others, uh, you know, people, of course, you know, program wise, think about, you know, the, the alcoholic who still suffers, but I don't think it should really be limited to that necessarily, especially if, we can help other people in other ways. And, and you're one of the examples of that. So please talk about that. Sure. Yeah. When I thought I was ready, I approached some individuals in AA and tried to sponsor them. And I know it's not my fault anyway that they didn't succeed, but I didn't have much luck with it. So uh, I was sitting at a meeting one time, a person <laughs> at the meeting, I was going to say a veteran because he is a veteran, but a, a man shared that he was in the Navy, excuse me, the Marine Corps. And I, I was in the service, too. I was in the Marines. So I identified with that. And then in his story, he had expressed you know, a problem with getting his benefits you know, through the Department of Veterans Affairs. And that's who I worked for. So I was able to approach him and successfully help him with his little problem, you know, and, and mm-hmm. route him the right way. And, and, you know, he was thankful for it. And in, in doing so, you know, I got nothing out of it. You know, I did it after hours, after work. I didn't have to help this person. He didn't know I worked for VA, but I'm glad I did approach him because I was able to help him, you know, and I, get, I provided service for him that he otherwise wasn't going to get. Well, I shouldn't say wasn't going to get, but didn't have, and it was very frustrated with his current position. So that blossomed into him telling a friend that he had a friend who was in the VA and maybe they could help. And before you know it, you know, there's a whole network of, of folks, you know, I, I'm talking, you know, fourth or fifth remove that I've never even met that I'm helping in Ohio or Alabama, or Florida, South Carolina, Maine, Connecticut, you know, and, and of course, right here in New Jersey where we live. I don't know any of these people other than, you know, even them on the phone and listening to their, their problem and just routing them the right way or maybe getting them the right paperwork or telling them what they need to do. And the gratitude is incredible, you know, because we've all dealt with a government entity in some form, whether it's the DMV or something else, you know, social security taxes, whatever. It's incredibly frustrating and it's incredibly intimidating because, you know, oh, call 1-800, we'll get right in touch with you. Yeah, right. You know, we've all sat on calls and waited and mm-hmm. polled and like, what? Press one and press yeah. two and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's incredibly, it's like a unique niche service that I'm able to provide, but I otherwise wouldn't do it, you know, if not for the program. I do kind of a different kind of service work, but it's still very rewarding. And the, the genuine thank yous that you get, it's just nothing like it, you know. Sure. Yeah. And there's a piece to where you're kind of unraveling some spiritual disruption for other people because they've been worried about benefits and, you know, in, in some cases money, in some cases treatment, and you're able to help. It's off hours. It's not, you know, quote unquote, part of your job. It's done with some, you know, unselfish motives. I mean, you know, we always yeah. talk about how, yeah, obviously it helps us. So there's some selfishness built into it, but your motives are different than they were, you know, say five years ago when someone said, hey, can you do a little extra? It's like, well, you're not paying me, so why would I do it extra? That's right. Yeah, that's for sure. And I, I just I do want to go back in time a little. I remember there was a gentleman that you used to talk about that you worked with who would had quite the negative attitude. Do you remember yeah. who I'm talking about? Oh yeah, Ed. 
Ed, Ed can, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your transformation with your relationship with Ed? Because I think that's important for people to hear about, because we all have someone at work like this. And so w- would you mind talking about that? Yeah, not at all. So everyone's miserable at work. <laughs> you know, everyone has a bad day at work. And when you have a bad day at work, you want to complain to people sure. that are also working with you and you want sympathy and empathy and, you know, harumph, harumph. You want someone on your side, listen to your story. So Ed was my go-to and vice versa. And we would complain about everything. This guy, that guy, this person, that person, this, you know, nonstop. And it was just negative. It was negativity. But of course, like everything else, I had no idea. I just, it made me feel better or so I thought. So after a while, I came up in discussion, you know, working with you and you started, you know, grooming me out of it again, saying, well, you know, talking with him about those things is just negativity that you really don't need in your life. You know, did you ever consider looking at it this way? And, uh, you know, did you ever consider just not participating in the negativity? You know, it floored me. Like, what? What are you talking about? I got to explain it. It's all these people you don't understand. And, but you did understand. So you slowly introduced me to the concept of just don't participate, you know? And uh, it didn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work all the time. Uh, occasionally sure. I still get sucked into the, the vortex, but eliminating the, you know, let me give you an analogy, a better way to look at it. Okay, sure. There was a, a very popular movie with Russell Crowe where he plays, and it's a true story based on, he's a very gifted economist, but he also has schizophrenia and he has uh, delusional schizophrenia and he sees people. Anyway, through the course of the movie, they, you know, you don't know what's real and what isn't. But at the end of the movie, he gets a grip on it. And the way the movie depicts it is that these entities that he believed were real, that aren't real, they show them constantly walking in the background hmm. of the movie, of him, you know, constantly lurking and looming. And that, that's what, you know, conversations with Ed could be. Right. You know, they are looming and lurking. And he still throws the bait out, you know, and still is hunting for me to take the bait and be reeled in and get into the, the you know, this person, that person, you know, F this, F that conversations. So they're always looming there, but through using the program, you know, and, and keeping those things at distance, I, I just feel better. I feel better. I, I don't, you know, badmouth people anymore because I'm looking past selfishness. I'm considering the fact that maybe, you know, they are the way they are for whatever reason it may be, but really it has nothing to do with me. And it, it's not my place to say anything. Uh, right. It's, yeah, uh, things anyway, become less personal. For someone to jump on his team and be miserable with them, and I'm not interested anymore. Yeah, that's another gift because it's like you said when you introduced the idea. It, it's just negativity. It's pure negativity, not to mention derogatory and it's gossip. Who needs gossip? You know? Right. Right. Excellent. That helpful. Thank you. Yeah. It's. I mean, I, I've personally seen the evolution. It, it just. I, I think it's good for other people to hear about. It's. It's very important yeah. because. Like you said, we all give into that temptation and you know, we want to feed it and n- nobody really feels good. You know, it might be temporary, but <laughs> shortly after that, it's just kind of, eh. What would you have done different? And I'll say your first 90 days, six months, or even your first year to kind of be like, oh, why didn't I just do this? Why didn't I just listen here? Well, you know, whether it's not, you know, to me or somebody else, is there anything you can recall? Because some people, as they're listening to this, might say, you know, what, you know, what what would you have done different starting out? I would have gone to more meetings, for sure. Mm, okay. And we've already addressed the fact that I have a very busy schedule, but to me, there are enough meetings. You know, at least we're lucky enough anyway here in northern New Jersey. There are enough meetings around here to go. Sure. But there's just, without a doubt, I should have gone to more meetings. But even now, some weeks I think, you know what, I should go to a meeting, and I do. But 
that's probably the biggest thing. And the second thing I would have done was not just, you know, showing up in the meeting when it started and leave the meeting when it ends. As uncomfortable as it may seem showing up as a new person, all the folks there just want to help you. Mm. you know? And even if you're the most introverted person in the world, if you just show up five minutes earlier, you just might bump into someone who could help you a little beyond the meeting, you know? And beyond, I mean, beyond what you're going to get out of the meeting if you get anything at all. Right. Uh, I would have been a little more social, you know? And, and by social, I simply mean showing up five minutes early and maybe lingering a little bit afterward. And I'll tell you this, I've never, in all the meetings I've been to in five years, or wherever I wanted to approach someone either say, thank you for sharing, or, or this is interesting, you shed light on this, or whatever the person was, whatever demographic they were, they were always willing to stop and talk to me, even if only for a minute. Mm. Everybody, no matter where I was in my sobriety, no matter what I said to them, which you know was positive, but they were always willing to give me more insight than what they shared at the meeting, you know, or to at least reinforce it and to offer help. Every wow. single person. I can't think of one person that turned me away. That's a great feeling. Yeah, but I had to do it. I had to initiate it. So to answer your question, what would I have done differently? More meetings. You know, and some folks do 90-90, and that's great if you can do it. But if you can't, just try to slip. If you, you can only make one meeting a week, try to get to two. Just try to do two. If you do two, try to do three. Mm-hmm. And uh, just try to identify with one thing that somebody says in any meeting, and then just have the courage maybe to approach them. Not all the time, just sometimes. Very You'd be nice. amazed. Everyone's happy. Yeah, everyone's happy to talk to you. I've never met someone that just, you know, oh, I got to go. I'm busy. You know, I've talked to people walking out to their cars, but they've said to me, listen, I'm in a rush, but let's walk and talk, you know? And even when we got to their car, they would still take up another extra 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes just to talk with me. You know, some gave advice on books, some gave advice on who else to talk to, some gave advice, you name it, you know? So those are the two things I would have done different. Very good. Thank you. And the second uh, one, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, the second one takes a lot of effort. It's like, if anyone's ever been in sales, they call it the 900-pound phone receiver. You know, it's so hard okay. to pick up a phone, call somebody. Same idea. It's very hard to do. I don't mean to you know suggest it's easy. Right to minimize the effort. Yeah, it's it's hard. But if you do it, you'll you'll the rewards will, you know you'll benefit greatly. Very nice. One last question, just about service work. You have helped out at certain meetings, and, and can you just talk about that a little bit and how how that's you know helped your sobriety? Absolutely. That was not forced upon me, but. <laughs> suggested heavily. And just like what I was suggesting, I wish I had done. I'm glad I did it and I continue to do it, but I'm glad I did it in early sobriety because it did exactly what I'm talking about. I had to get there early and let's say I had the coffee commitment. I had to get there early and make coffee. And in doing so, I wasn't the only one there. So I, I mean, I could stand in the room and not talk to anybody, but there were always two or three individuals there that had other responsibilities to do. And I used to get to talk to them and know them. And how did it help me? But besides just being responsible for something other than myself, it helped me meet the folks at the meeting and become a little more comfortable, get a little more insight on what's going on. And you know what? Some of them gossiped, just like I was saying I shouldn't do. But that's what they did, you know? Right. It doesn't right. matter. It got me, it was the, you know, some folks call it the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting. That's what it was. And it, if anything, it gave me more comfort at the meeting. Like, you know what? I know some of these people now. It's not so bad. I'm not a foreigner. Nice. Yeah, that's a nice benefit when you become a little more of an active participant and are able to you know, be a part of the meeting and you know what to do when someone says, hey, you know, where do I get this or where do I get that? It's like, oh, from me, you know, <laughs> instead of pointing them somewhere, it's like, no, you're the guy now. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's right. Well, good. Well, as, as we kind of wrap things up, is there anything else you'd like to just, just add uh, before, we, before we end? If you don't have a sponsor, get one, of course, which is trite. 
But if you have a sponsor and you don't like them, get another sponsor. They're not, your feelings won't be hurt. And if their feelings are hurt, then they're not working the program and they're no good to you anyway. And I've been blessed with having a good sponsor, but I've talked to and developed so many new friendships and I've listened to folks complain about their sponsor. Like you said earlier, you can't find them or can't get them or my sponsor told me this. And it's not that they disagree with what they're saying, but it has nothing to do with what their real problem is, at least as an outsider looking in. And I don't, I've never said it and I never will, but I, in my mind, I'm thinking, look, if you're not working with this person, and it sounds like you're not working with this person, right. find someone you can work with because you're just wasting your time. Well, you're not wasting your time, but you're not, you're not going to make the progress that you could make if you find somebody that could actually help you more so than the person is that's helping you presently. Right. It's, it's so, nice to sign up for the gym membership and pay every month, but if you don't go, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then going back to the 900 pound receiver again, you're not going to want to call this person, you know, because you're not working well with them. So at, what I'm trying to say is that, if the, you know, if you're out there and yeah, you're, you're lucky enough to have a sponsor, that's great. But if you're not really doing anything with that sponsor and you're avoiding his or her calls and you know, just not really doing the steps or avoiding. If there's any reason that you don't like your sponsor, I think you should, you know, probably seek out some more help somewhere else. All right. Very good. Well, I want to thank you again for your time and you know, hopefully we can do another interview. I think there's a lot more to your story, but this is great for now. We have come to the end of this episode of Seasons of Sobriety. I trust that you were able to identify with the personal story of our guest and perhaps apply some of their experience to give you the hope needed to persevere through your own journey. A special thanks to Nick Marcos, who has generally given his time and talent composing the music of this episode. This podcast has been completely self-funded. If you believe today's episode has been beneficial, I ask that you contribute a little more this week to your home group or other meetings, perhaps five or $10 if you can spare it. Until next time, remember, if you have trouble practicing the principles of the steps in all your affairs, You may have too many affairs.